Where are you in your leadership journey? Designed to inspire and empower other ambitious individuals, the Mindful Rebel Leadership Podcast brings attention to leaders in our community who are influencers, change makers, and innovators, and focuses on where they are currently in their leadership journey. So take a few minutes, be open and receptive to set intention to learn from the journey of doers and thinkers, demonstrating success in their life and in their respective areas of influence. Thank you and welcome to season two of the Mindful Rebel Leadership Podcast. The Mindful Rebel Leadership Podcast is brought to you by Gamefly.com. Gamefly.com has all the new releases and classics available for rent for the Nintendo Switch, PS4, Xbox One, and all the other systems. Sign up for a free 30-day trial specifically for my listeners at GameflyOffer.com slash MindfulRebel. That's GameflyOffer.com slash MindfulRebel. Welcome to Season 2 of the Mindful Rebel Podcast, the podcast about journeys in leadership. In this episode via Skype, we'll talk to Dr. Mordecai Ian Brown-Lee. Dr. Mordecai is the VP of Student Success at St. Philip's College and adjunct faculty at the University of Charleston in the School of Business and Leadership. Welcome, Dr. Mordecai. Hey, thank you for having me, Sean. I appreciate Of course. Um, well, I can think a great place to start with with our conversation is just to talk about as someone who is also in um, higher education and in student affairs, um, what was the catalyst for your pursuit in a career in higher ed and student affairs? I am so sorry, Sean. What was the first part of that question, my friend? Tell me that first part. Sure. Um, you know, as, a, as someone who is also in, you know, higher ed and student affairs, I know that um, sometimes student affairs is not necessarily the most clear cut career goal, you know, um, that's I, right. I think now we're starting to see a lot more programs come out, you know, the master's level and PhD level programs around higher education and, and particularly student affairs. But, you know, it, it wasn't always the field that, that people start out like, I want to be a student affairs practitioner. So that's for, right. That's for, right. For you, um, how did you end up down that, this lane in particular and, and what was, um, yeah, how did you get there? You know, for for me, um, the, it, it really came down to it, it, student affairs was not on my radar at all. Um, I just fell into it as a passion. Uh, my first job working in what I now know to be student affairs that I didn't realize was student affairs was uh, recreational sports. Uh, I attended a community college um, and was trying to find my way and wanted to make a little extra money. And so I began to assist with the basketball games and in the rec, rec sports program. And from there, uh, once I received my associates and moved on to a four-year school, I needed another means to help uh, subsidize some of my costs at the institution. And so I saw they were hiring for resident assistants. And at that particular time, I didn't know anything about it. I just knew it was a way that could help me pay for school. And that was the, one of the best decisions I've ever made, because from there, I really grew to love residents' life and then got into student development, and it just took off from there. So when I got a chance to really see the impact, the relationships um, that you can make with people and the impact you can make in their lives, I said, this is, this is something I want to spend the rest of my life doing. So with that, you know, this is a question that I that I ask my guests quite often. Um, in particular, when I when I interview educators, um, how do you gauge impact in your role? You know, that's a very good question. I, I think for me, the impact um, is I love watching the light bulb go off for people. 
And in education, it's a great industry that you can work in where you can see that light bulb go off, when that, that point of enlightenment, that point of, of, of understanding. Because once someone grasps and really owns that understanding, then own that new knowledge, it makes a world of difference for so many people in so many different facets. It can be anything as uh, simple learning how to navigate college, which is not a simple thing, uh, to financial literacy. But once you teach them and really impart that into them, then they're going to impart that into their friends and family. And, and I love seeing that. So for me, that's the impact that I measure is have I done a good job of enlightening the student or the person that I'm either mentoring or educating or advising. So one of the things, you know, as a, as a student affairs practitioner, I know that, you know, there's always this kind of push and pull in certain institutions between academic affairs and student affairs. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes it's, it's a lot of the times that push and pull is not always a full understanding of the scope of what student affairs practitioners do, you know, that there is a, 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 a learning, a development piece that happens outside of the classroom. And that, that is substantial to their growth as a, you know, overall, overall development as a student and just, you know, as a leader in, um, you know, in their educational uh, development. How do you navigate, you know, as a, a chief student affairs officer, how do you navigate that interesting push and pull with, with academic affairs um, to really highlight the the importance um, of our side of the table? You know, one of the things that we have to get used to as student affairs practitioners uh, is how to quantify our impact. Um, I have personally seen it throughout the years to where student affairs, we, we, we can do a great job of giving the qualitative story. Uh, we can do the great job of putting a picture up on the wall and saying, these are the students that we're impacting. These are the differences that we're making. But not every student affairs practitioner can tie what they do to the bottom line. And by the bottom line, I mean financial bottom line. So I think that that's where the story gets lost. And no, by no means can we say that every impact and every student that we're making, that that is going to equate to a dollar figure. However, it is those relationships. It is those uh, that dirty work that, that goes unspoken that really plays back into retention and engagement and, and persistence uh, and, and uh, all the different things that end up impacting the bottom line through alumni engagement, alumni giving, you name it. Um, you know, if a student has a bad experience uh, in a, let's just use as a sake of example, frontline admissions, welcome centers, if they have a bad experience, not only are, going to, are they going to share that with their immediate friends and family, but there's no telling uh, statistically, they say that that one bad experience equates to seven bad experiences by the time that they can share it with someone else. So, you know, we've got to do a better job of telling our story, but having uh, the ability to tie it back to the financials. So the academic side of the houses and the college services and CFO sides of the houses, all these people can understand that, you know what, what we do is significant because this is how it impacts and really speak their language. Second part of that is just the culture. The campus culture really makes the difference. Um, and when, when you don't have a campus culture that truly understands student affairs and student development, then you got to do a good job of educating them. 
and um, and and that really deals with the, the, the that's where the statistics come in, where where we can really partner with the academic side of the house, work pull those state reports, showcase what's happening in the classroom, showcase the loss that we're having in terms of persistence, academic side of the house to craft programs that will promote program completion. And I think that that's a great starting point for any institution that's having a hard time really merging both sides of the houses. Well, thank you. So I think that's also a great segue into the next question. Um, so how do you define leadership and how has that factored into your educational philosophy um, as a chief student affairs officer? How do I define leadership? I've never been asked that. You know, um, leadership is... I believe one's um, one's ability to maximize their God-given gift, and so leadership doesn't necessarily mean supervising someone. Leadership has different uh, facets to it. It looks different ways, and and uh, except, however, uh, culture teaches us that leadership, you know, means either a you're an executive or you have people answering to you, but that's not necessarily leadership, um, and and so. You know, we have to do a better job of really training and teaching all of our team, and all the people that work with us, that there is truly a leader in every have to respect everyone's leadership ability and that my leadership may not look like your leadership, but working together and creating an environment where everyone can be respected and that there is opportunity for everyone's leadership to be showcased. Some great things can really happen at the institution and just period when we when we make room for people to do what it is that they they've been put on this earth to do some really amazing things can happen so i think that's it's a great segues cuz you know that's a question i wanted to ask is that in your role um as vp you are essentially in a space where you are leading the leaders of their particular um you know offices and departments and so how do you create that space or create that environment where folks that follow you who are leaders in their own respective right um, are able able to navigate and, and be able to make those decisions and, and kind of grow and develop in their own professional capacity? You know, there's two things that I really believe in uh, very heavily. Number one is to educate. Um, what I mean by that from a leadership perspective is our people should know what the heck is going on. Gaps and information, you leave room for people's imaginations to take off. Um, you leave room for people's, uh, for, for individuals, their perceptions and perspectives to really take off. So you've got to provide the data. You've got to provide the information. You've got to educate people on what's going on at their institutions. That way they won't form their own narratives. Uh, I think that that's key um, because we can go down a whole other path of conversation about that. But that really helps in terms of leadership. If once your people are educated and they understand what's going on, then we've got to empower them. And and when when people are educated, they understand their role, they understand what it is that they do, the role that they play in and advancing the mission of the institution um, and the teammates. Then we've got to we've got to empower them to do that and to create that environment. For me, one of the things that I pride myself in being able to do is to really do an assessment of my leaders, uh, my, my, and for the sake of this example, I'll just say of my direct reports and my directors and those that have departments uh, underneath them answering to them. We've got to do a true assessment of their skill set, 
how effective have you been in your role? What have the weaknesses really been? Let's strengthen those weaknesses. Let's ensure that communication is A1 because com poor communication will take any, any organization down. And what can we do to ensure that the, the information flow is happening from the top to the bottom? And then once that's moving forward, then my job, I really see as chief affairs officer, is to ensure that all the processes are in line with the mission of the institution. But then I got to clear the way. I've got to I've got to do my part at the table, as they say, um, and, and, and in those meetings that they don't have access to uh, or not involved in. And I've got to clear the way I've, I have to be the one then working with academic success or academic affairs to ensure that the, the proper story is being told with the support of data to make sure that my deans and my directors can do their job and that there's true partnership happening. So everyone has to play their role. And I've got to clear the way and make sure that I'm doing my advocacy part at the table to ensure that they can do their part. Right. So with that, so, I mean, thinking about where you are currently in your career and your career trajectory, I know you've hit two major accomplishments, you know, at such an early age and obtaining your uh, doctoral degree and then becoming a chief student affairs officer at, at 30. Um, how much of that was strategy? Like, is that, was that your plan and goal to hit that? Or is what went into your, your, your role in navigating, um, to those accomplishments? Yeah. And I'll be honest with you. It was, it was not a part of my original plan. One of the things that I learned about myself that I, I learned very quickly, very early on, um, is, is that I enjoy management. And not management from the egotistical, I want people to answer to me. I believe that one of the things that I've been put on this earth to do is to build people and to build pro, uh, build systems. Mm. That's, what I, that's what I do. Like, that's what I believe I've been put on this earth to do. So it is very easy for me then to make assessments, to, to conduct the research, to put the pieces together, to find out where the engine is broken down. That's the thing I can do in my sleep. I had to try to figure out then how can I tie that gift or that ability into education? Because at first I wasn't pursuing education. I was looking at industry um, being that corporate industry and trying to do that. And then I realized the, the lesson, the hard lesson, that there's lifestyles attached to all of these different jobs. So I wanted to ensure then I was in alignment with the right kind of lifestyle that I wanted to have for my family and myself which education provided me that kind of a, the lifestyle that I was looking for, the sustainability, the solidarity I was looking for. And so you pair that then with the gift. And so that then became the strategy. Once I realized, okay, I can tie this all together and make sense of this, then it was just about f putting together um, the right mentors. And one of my mentors told me, uh, they referred to it, uh, Dr. Harris told me, you know, your mentors, you've got to consider them your board of directors. And so she told me, she says, you got to put your board of directors together with the people that needs to be at the need to be at the table for your particular career, and they can help guide you on what to do. And when I put the right board of directors together for myself, I realized then strategically I could climb and climb pretty fast, but I also needed to ensure that with all this climbing and the quick climb that I was making, that I needed to ensure my competence in each and every one of those roles. Because if I don't get it right, then I'm going to mess it up for every other young executive trying to come behind me. Wow. But if I can get it right, if I can get it right, then those that are coming behind me that I don't even know that are coming behind me, 
I give them a fighting shot because I helped tear down one of the walls or I helped tear remove one of the bricks off the wall. So in all of this maneuvering and, you know, serving my time here and serving my time here and doing this and doing that and continue to make the climb, I also understand the strong responsibility that I have with it. And it's the reason why I, I work triple times harder than anyone I would consider my competition to make sure that I'm getting it right, not just for the sake of competition, but just for the sake of myself and my own integrity uh, in the role. So with that, you mentioned, you know, your gift and, and, and identifying um, the gift that you have and, and making your career fit around that. So how did you start to identify what your gift was? Like, what was it about that that started to stick out to you that made you realize that this is my calling and this is the lane that that I should, you know, start going down at that point? You know, I, I go back to childhood. My mother, I was raised by a single parent mother um, uh, who who was an educator. She was a special education educator for almost 30 years and and uh, principal in the whole nine. And she, she had her time with that. And one of the things I would hear her tell her students all the time is she would ask the question because students say, I don't know what I want to be. I don't know what I want to do. And she would always just say, what is the thing that you can do without thinking? What, what is the thing that you can do without thinking? And I started really thinking about that. And, and it took years. Now, it's not like something that came overnight, but just years of really thinking about that. I'm someone I can read. I, I love to read. I love to process. I love to see things from different sides of the coin. I love to analyze. And I love to find, um, um, you know, where, where, where the missing pieces are. I love to fix things. Not necessarily by hand, because that's not something that really interests me. I'm not the guy that's going to be in the wood shop trying to fix something or piece something together. Or I'm not the guy that's going to buy something at the store and want to put it together. However, I am the guy that wants to read the manual and figure out what they forgot to put in it. And I just, just little by little started looking at what are the things that truly interest me, and then how can I put all this together and do something with it? And, and that's when I started understanding that the strategic planning, the, the strategic management and operations and the analytics was just something that was something I could make a living doing. So with that, just transitioning a bit to some more of the information that you provided, you know, prior to the interview. And I know one of the books, which is it's it's. I always I say this like every episode is that one of the things I love about the podcast is that it's a it's a way for, it's a vehicle for my own professional development um and i love when podcast guests talk about books um cuz i inhale books <laughs> quite i love reading <laughs> um so i you know i always say that like you know, my podcast guests are providing me with like the amazing reading list and one of the books that you mentioned uh, the pedagogy of the press um, i love it is the great thing I haven't read it yet, but it came up in one of my summer courses. One a professor that I that I absolutely admire um, uh, suggested that you know it, it's a book that we all need to read, um, and it, you know I have it, and it's actually the next book on my list to to pick up and read. Um, why was this book so influential to you? I love this book. Before I answer that question, I've got to tell I love this book. It is by far probably my top three books ever really um yes uh, the pedagogy of the oppressed is something that it, it, it's like a fine cuisine you you may eat you may you may you may get that first fork 
spoonful and, and you're going to stare back at it and you're going to say, okay, you, you start to pick out the ingredients, but you may have to go back and read it again. I ended up having to read this book about five times over and I still haven't gotten everything I need to get out of it. Wow. What Pablo, what Pablo Freer ended up hitting on was, and, and it speaks to my passion of analytics and, and, and strategic uh, aspects, except what he ended up exposing was how it can be used for oppression and what happens in the school systems and how oppression can be taught without the title of oppression, how poverty can be instilled without poverty ever, the word poverty ever being used, how you can, how you can segregate an entire nation an entire people, entire neighborhood, an entire race, strategically without them even knowing it. And it and it that book caused me to reevaluate even some of the aspects of life and certain things that I've embraced that I thought was a part of my quote unquote culture that I had to go back and look and ask the question, was this taught to me subliminally? And I've now owned it and then called it my own, not realizing this is all a part of the trick. It's a bad book, and 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 it and it just caused for me to reevaluate a lot of aspects of my life, and realize that the, some of the images, some of the things that I was exposed to as a child on television and music and in school, you know, people. And I'll just give you one sake of it, uh, one one example. Right now, uh, and for the past ten years, there's been a lot of discussion about um, standardized testing. Yeah, there's been a lot of conversation about that. However. You know, Pablo Freer back then was was helping people was was beginning to expose this idea of how can I stop students from thinking in the classroom, and 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 strategically, is there a way in which I can persuade an entire generation to move in one direction without giving thought? And standardized testing is one of those things where I understand its purpose. So I'm not totally anti against standardized testing, but I am anti against what what the industry has turned it out to be. Uh, I believe the standardized testing is something that should be done for true assessment. And then from the assessment, you build a success plan and then you move the student forward. However, we have reversed it and it has become the tool that is used for progression. And that's where the challenges are with it. But what Pablo Freer was saying was, is what if you stop students from thinking and you use the classroom for brainwashing? And he, I think it, even in the book, he uses the term brainwashing. There's a way that I can impart a culture, culture and a heritage and a history, a narrative, and shape it in a manner in which people have no recollection of who they are and what they are by the time that I finish imparting this into them. And it's just it's just an amazingly powerful book. So as you progress on your leadership journey, of course, as a, as a leader in, in higher ed, how does that make you reflect on the impact that you want to leave, you know, as a leader? You know, we have to get people to think. We need to, yes, there's, there's, you can't teach without curriculum. I get it. But we need to look at the curriculum. And we need to ask ourselves as educators, is this curriculum, is this the student experience, what is it? 
what are we really doing? Are we regurgitating what we've been taught? Because if that's the case, then we need to really take question and concern with what it is that we've been taught. And because we can't force, you know, folks always throw this word innovation out there. <laughs> but are we really being innovative if we're just doing the same thing over and over? And and the the education industry as a whole has done a lot of the same thing over and over, hoping that at some point in time we're going to get a different result. And that's not how we're going to get there. It will take new. It will take a new curriculum. It will take a new approach. And you have now more than ever a heightened sense of culturalism, a heightened sense of heritage, a heightened sense of race, and a lot of more questions are being asked. And there's a lot of individuals from former generations that are very scared about this new enlightening movement, but it has to happen. In order for progression to happen, it's more than just the T-shirt. It's more than just the meme. It's more than just the, the Facebook post and the Instagram post and the Twitter post. What are we going to do to actually start changing lifestyles and changing mindsets and, and changing people beyond the television screens? They're every day inside the home behavior. And it's going to take that kind of progression. So as educators, we have a huge responsibility, especially in today's time, to build off of this this, this new awareness and really give form and shape to it. Because if we're not careful, it'll get beyond us. And then the wrong perceptions and the wrong understandings will come in and it will revert us back to the old. And then there we go again. We're just repeating the cycle. And you're right to 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 even pull it out that way. I think is 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 really enlightening because you know looking at this movement that we see with our students and and being you know galvanizing around a lot of causes as a as a as an educator, it's actually put some more fire in me to be able to look at how I'm pouring into the students in order to to develop them in a, in a certain way. So I, I like how you you phrase it that way because it we have to take. I think I think we have to look at it as an opportunity um, to look at education from a, from an actual um, creative standpoint. I think we I think we really have an opportunity here to make a, a change um, with our approach to education now. Absolutely, absolutely. And the question becomes: Is will will the institution itself allow us to do our work? Um, and uh, more change has to happen. More change has to happen. Statistically, you know, the 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 academy is is shaping up to have massive retirements over the next ten years. So as these as these new leaders come into play over the next ten years, we have to do more than just celebrate the fact that we've got a new title with more money in a corner office. Uh, you've got we've got to embrace. We must embrace the responsibility so this thing can move forward in the manner it should. Absolutely. So with that, so as looking at, you know, your personal leadership development, how do you keep yourself sharp in terms of leadership? Are there any, um, you know, I know you spoke of the, the pedagogy of the oppressed, but are there any other books, movies, podcasts, anything that you, you utilize that kind of help keep you sharp um, in your um, approach to your professional professional life? Um, two things, man. Two things. Uh, the, the first thing would be, I go back to that analogy I used of the board of directors, mentors. Who we surround ourselves with 
uh, really speaks to where we're headed. And there's nothing wrong with having friends that are on the same level as us professionally and intellectually. Nothing wrong with it. We need that. But I have made a purpose and a point to ensure that that my mentors are people that I am I am years away from ever touching the hem of their garments. I, I've I've got a long way to go before I could ever even call them a colleague and, and feel even as though I'm I'm not being disrespectful and using that term. And so that's who I've now um, situated and, and called as, as my mentors. And it's a select few. And um, they, keeping my eye on them, not necessarily concentrating on them as a person, but them as their profession, because everyone is fault, has faults. No one is perfect. But when I look at what they've accomplished and I look at their impact, and um, those are the things that I look at. Okay, if that's where I'm headed, then this is then the, the self accountability comes in of saying, okay, I've got to I've got to make sure that my moves are in line with what I want 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 to strive to be. The second thing I would say with that is my faith. Rather than any book um, or any podcast or any videos or any, my faith has really kept me because if I embrace my faith for the for the pureness in which it is the integrity and the self-awareness and the self-discipline of that then drives me to be a better professional day in and day out. And I'm one of those folks, I play each and every one of my days, every day that goes by, I play it back. I can't go to sleep. I can't close my eyes at night until I play my entire day back in my mind. And I think about it, essentially SWOT analysis. I do a SWOT analysis with myself every night. What is it that I did good? What were my weaknesses? What were my opportunities? And what are the threats that I faced that I either gave too much time to something, too much thought to something? I wasted time and resource, and I shouldn't do that moving forward until the next day. And I just use that as fuel to wake up and, and, and hit it hard the next morning. And this is another thing I say about the podcast is that I, in interviewing my guests, it's it's – my guests always say something that really resonates, you know, around the something that's going on with me in my life as well. So I, as I'm hopeful that that the podcast is is influential to someone that's listening, it's always this is a little bit of therapy for me. So it's good to hear you say that too, to, uh, and and being intentional about being reflective of your day, um, and what that can do to kind of jumpstart your next day in in that kind of analysis, especially to do that on a on a nightly basis to be able to kind of look back, review and assess what your how how you spent your day and your time. Um yeah, that's just yeah, yeah. I'm Well, you know, yeah. and, and here's the thing with that, my friend. My my thing is is that if if leadership is the focus, then we have to be able to be the best managers of ourselves that we can be. How can I go and lead an institution? How can I go and lead a department, a division, and I can't lead myself? You know, and, and I think that's the mockery. And I think that that's been the other thing that's been very disappointing for me. Um, and, and now the the people that I've had a chance to meet and the interactions and colleagues that I now have is you can see all the accomplishments on the wall, but they, uh, forgive me, I'll just use this, they suck at life. They, 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 they're, they're so busy trying to be Mr. or Miss President, Mr. or Miss Vice President, Mr. or Miss Dean, or you name it, that they embrace that, but their life, their home, their family, their children are in shambles. 
And I understand that there's some aspects that you can't control. I totally get that. However, there's a lot that we can control. And so the one thing I wanted to make sure that as I went down this leadership journey is, is that my life was a true representation of what it was I said I was doing. If I can't have my own finances in order, what the heck do I have doing running your organization's finances? Mm. It, it just, it, it's a mockery. So if, if leadership is what we're really doing, then our lives should be ran like businesses. Our lives should be ran like organizations, meaning that day in and day out, we can't live a life that's passive. How is it that you could possibly call yourself a leader or be striving to leadership and you're closing your eyes and you haven't made any assessment of your day? It doesn't make sense. It, it's just we're too passive. And I think that, that to go back to Pablo Freer and the pedagogy of oppressed, that's just one book. But it's a very powerful book that talks about the passive nature that begins to be imparted in people. And, and essentially, you're the walking dead. And you don't even realize it. And, and we're, we're not doing the best job that we can. So, yeah, I'm there just, you go. I'm, I'm just sitting here like, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I'm just, yeah. I, I think we'll, so this is a good transition. I think that was a good way to lead the, the opening of the, of the interview. Um, as we wrap up the interview, we normally do some rapid fire questions. So a lot of this is kind of like personality based questions. Um, and so you can answer how, how you see fit. Um, what book, if you had the opportunity to, um, would you turn into a film? I think it's aspects of the Bible that really need to be told. And I don't mean that from, uh, um, you know, what some folks, they hear the Bible and they all of a sudden they're turned off by what I'm saying. But there's a lot in there that that hasn't been told that probably if people saw it in, 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 in movie form, and with the right budget, it would make a lot of sense. We hear these stories in the Bible, and I'm like, that wouldn't really happen. However, you think about thousands and thousands of years of history, it's very possible <laughs> some of this stuff actually happened, and these, 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 these things that experienced in nature really did happen. So I would be interested to see the Bible really played out in film uh, done correctly. Okay. What's the best advice you received from someone that you lead? Oh, wow. Um, I know we're supposed to be answering this quickly. You said rapid. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's let okay. Me, let me see. I would say, I would say, uh, be careful. Be careful. And, and by that, it means nothing wrong with moving forward and progression, but we need to be careful and be cautious and also understand that there's different agendas at play that are well beyond what we could ever imagine. And so we need to, to, we need to account for those things. For you, um, are leaders born or made? Made. Okay. And lastly, um, and this is the wrap up question that I do for all my, um, podcast guests. Um, and this doesn't have to be as rapid fire. Um, at the end of the day, um, what would you like to be known for? building people and, and, and building systems, um, making, you know, it, it, it is a passion of mine, build people. Um, we break cycles, cycles of you name, whether it be poverty, whether it be alcoholism, whether it be abuse, whether it be, um, um, you name it, 
you know, there's these different things that some of us have in our own family histories that we're trying to get past. We're trying to move past. We're trying to be better than. And if we can invest ourselves in one another towards the breaking of those cycles, then we change the trajectories of our families forever. And then a part of when I say building systems, then we should build the experiences. What do we need to do to ensure that the organizations, the institutions in which these people that are, are empowered to make a difference have the right environment to ensure that that difference is being made and being developed within them so truly they can go out and do the same for others. So that's what I want to be known for being one of the best to, to, to do that. Well, Dr. Mordecai, thank you. Um, thank you for taking the time out of your evening, out of your day, out of your schedule to uh, impart some, some wisdom. The conversation was great. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for the time, sir. Of course. More information about Dr. Mordecai will be posted along with the podcast, including his website. Um, thank you for listening to this episode of the Mindful Herbal Podcast. Stay tuned for our next exciting episode. Stay connected on your leadership journey with the Mindful Rebel Leadership Podcast by visiting the website, themindfulrebel.co, following the show on Instagram and Twitter at themindfulrebel, and subscribing to the Mindful Rebel Leadership Podcast on the following formats, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Add to the leadership dialogue by liking, sharing, and commenting on your favorite episodes. And as always, thank you for the continued support.